Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. Welcome to Teddy Talks, April 13th. 2020, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and future home of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. I do hope you had a, a wonderful Easter with your family or joining people uh, on the internet, uh, as the case may be. Monday, April 13th, 2020, a chance for us to reflect a bit on Theodore Roosevelt's life and legacy, but on this date in history. This is the birthday of President Thomas Jefferson, our third president, and found by Gutsum Borglum, the art artist who designed Mount Rushmore to be Mount Rushmore worthy, along with Theodore Roosevelt, George Washington, and Abraham Lincoln, on the bicentennial of Jefferson's birth, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, fifth cousin, once removed Franklin Delano Roosevelt, dedicated the Jefferson Memorial. On this day, April 13th, 1852, uh, the birth in upstate New York of Franklin Winfield Woolworth, F.W. Woolworth, the developer of the Five and Dime store, uh, uh, he would uh, find his first success in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and then New York City when built the War Woolworth Building, uh, was the tallest building in New York City. Uh, he would also build, uh, Mr. Woolworth, a home uh, on Glen Cove in New York, making him a neighbor to Sagmore Hill. He built that in 1916, so there was a new house in Teddy's neighborhood uh, in 1916. The estate is called Winfield. And, uh, of course, uh, we're thankful for the Five and Dime store. Had one growing up myself. On this date in 1861, uh, the Union forces at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, uh, having suffered bombardment uh, from the shore batteries, uh, the fort surrendered on this date in 1861. In that case, let me return to Jefferson. Theodore Roosevelt, in his writings, and I'll need to check if these were public utterances as well, I doubt it in the latter, probably in his private writings, perhaps in some of his history writings, uh, did not care much for Thomas Jefferson on a, a broad range of issues, but uh, two in particular are related uh, 
uh, to what happened at Fort Sumter, April 13, 1861. Uh, first, uh, Jefferson as president uh, had uh, a very limited concept of what we should have, if anything, in the way of a standing army or a standing navy. Thought it was uh, sufficient to defend uh, the United States' interests by having a series of coastal gunboats and coastal fortresses. Uh, tell that to uh, British ships of the line and uh, others of France and great powers. So uh, the burning of the White House in 1814 during the War of 1812, Theodore Roosevelt would lay at the feet not only of uh, uh, President Madison, but also at his uh, predecessor, uh, that uh, Thomas Jefferson. And then uh, T.R. does write with regards to Jefferson's influence, perhaps even being a co-author of the Kentucky Resolutions, uh, later as well, these are the uh, uh, the South Carolina uh, uh, nullification uh, documents. This concept that states could nullify federal laws, uh, part of the impetus uh, for the South's reaction to uh, uh, to the election of Lincoln. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, I, I joke, uh, doesn't necessarily like the fact that he's got Thomas Jefferson at his shoulder on Mount Rushmore. In 1911, on this date, April 13th, the death of John McLean. Born in Scotland in 1852, his family came to Manchester, New Hampshire uh, the following year. John McLean would go on to be elected the uh, 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 after being a state legislator and a delegate to the 1900 uh, GOP convention in Philadelphia that nominated Theodore Roosevelt as vice president. John McLean would serve as the 50th governor of the state of New Hampshire would welcome the Russian and Japanese delegates uh, to uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire to negotiate an end to the Russo-Japanese War. This results in Theodore Roosevelt's Nobel Peace Prize and uh, many historians uh, looking at uh, what occurred in Portsmouth, uh, how the uh, state government and local citizens joined with the United States Navy and making sure that everything was done to see those negotiations through, uh, to much of the credit for the a successful conclusion of those negotiations should go uh, uh, to John McLean, who indeed had the initiative of inviting the uh, negotiations to be held in New Hampshire in its wonderful climate in the summer. Uh, in 1920, on this date, a point of personal privilege and a source of joy to me to remember my late grandmother, Elizabeth Onan, Pauline Elizabeth Kaler Prager Onan, and uh, this would be Grandma's 100th birthday. Uh, had she uh, she made it, uh, she passed at the age of 80. I'm delighted to say that uh, uh, she's left a legacy of uh, children and grandchildren, a great deal of love in this world. Uh, so uh, if I may, today's program dedicated to uh, my grandmother who encouraged me in my reading and studies and always had the set of encyclopedias at Grandma's house. On this date in 1870, the founding of the New York City Metropolitan Museum of Art. Do you call that the Met? Uh, don't uh, confuse it with the MoMA, the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art. And that brings me to the subject of uh, today's uh, reading from Theodore Roosevelt himself, hence Teddy Talks. Uh, this, uh, this reading is a layman's view of an art exhibition. 1912, Theodore Roosevelt is defeated for election to the presidency. Just a few short months later, uh, he is invited uh, by his uh, friends, who are the, uh, uh, the board, the officers of the American Association of Painters and Sculptors. 
they in uh, February opened the Armory Show, uh, also known as the uh, International Exhibition uh, of Modern Art, uh, more popularly known as uh, uh, as the Armory Show. For it was held in the uh, new 69th Infantry Regiment uh, Armory on uh, Lexington Avenue between 25th and 26th. The Armory is still there today, and I saw it this winter. Uh, it uh, showed uh, many of the uh, artworks uh, that would become famous uh, in that era of modernism, impressionism, uh, cubism, and uh, uh, and all uh, Duchamp, Matisse, Picasso uh, were shown at that show. A couple of notes, uh, uh, again, reading Theodore Roosevelt, he sends me to look up things that I did not know for. He often makes uh, uh, allusion to statements uh, from literature, uh, biblical references, uh, references to uh, other of his contemporaries uh, that uh, haven't remained as uh, well-known or famous. So in his uh, essay, A Layman's View of an Art Exhibition, uh, he makes a mention of a couple of things. First, let me back up. Uh, not enough coffee yet here in the, uh, in the badlands of North Dakota. Uh, when you look at the list of the original trustees and officers of the Metropolitan Museum. This was again sanctioned by New York City and the state legislature of New York. So the governor of New York, the mayor of New York City, certain other city officers are ex officio trustees. But amongst the trustees is Theodore Roosevelt, what we know in history as Theodore Roosevelt Sr. This is our Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt's father known as uh, Thee, or Great Heart, uh, as he's referred to in the family. Uh, so we learned the other day, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's father was one of the original founders and indeed a great impetus for the founding of the American Museum of Natural History, serving on its board since its inception from 1869 uh, until his passing in 1878, and equally uh, appointed as an original trustee to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, serving on that board. Uh, this is a time when New York is ascendant, uh, coming out of the terrible Civil War and uh, race riots in 1863, uh, uh, called the anti-draft riots, but uh, greatly race riots. And so New York City, uh, uh, in a resurgent United States, uh, New York City was sending a message that it was worthy of being a world-class city. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt's father, living an example of uh, giving to the community, uh, doing the uh, uh, the work of the family, uh, uh, very often the philanthropy, the community engagement work that uh, we might say today was done by Theodore Roosevelt's father on behalf of Roosevelt and Sons, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's grandfathers and uncles uh, and his father's business. So in the allusions that are made, a couple that I picked out, uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, first tells us that he doesn't care much for the modern art that's on display, a good deal of it anyway, and not a spoiler alert uh, there, I think. Uh, but he does mention Marcius Simmons. He's referring to uh, what his, in history we know as Pinckney Marcius Simmons, uh, who uh, would uh, die short years after the showing, I believe. But uh, there's uh, something about uh, the paintings that Theodore Roosevelt appreciates uh, that uh, in the work of Marcius Simmons, that he was able to capture, quote, light that never was on land or sea. Because it's in quotation marks, 
but again, uh, not given uh, uh, attribution by Theodore Roosevelt. He's assuming his reading audience in this case uh, knows the, uh, uh, the citation. It's William Wordsworth, uh, the English poet. Uh, the uh, phrase comes from his elegiac stanzas suggested by a picture of Peel Castle in a storm painted by Sir George Beaumont. That's the title of the poem. The poem is about a painting. Theodore Roosevelt is quoting a poem about a painting in his uh, essay reviewing an art exhibit. This is one of the reasons why I love Theodore Roosevelt. The stanza from Wordsworth. Ah, then, if mine had been the painter's hand to express what then I saw and add the gleam, the light that never was on sea or land, the consecration and the poet's dream. Right in that same paragraph, uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, goes on to mention the, the sort of painting that was on display that he enjoyed. Uh, and he mentions that he really enjoys the work done by uh, Sheriff Bob Chandler. He says of Arizona, I believe, uh, Sheriff Bob Chandler served as sheriff for a, a three-year term in the uh, first decade of the 20th century in Dutchess County, New York. Uh, that's just uh, upstream and north uh, on the Hudson River Valley from New York City. Bob Chandler's brother, Winthrop, was wounded in Cuba in the Spanish-American War, and Theodore Roosevelt was godfather to Winthrop's son, Bob Chandler's nephew, Theodore. So uh, you might know Chandler's work, uh, Giraffes, a very famous print from 1905. Chandler spending a great deal of time uh, uh, painting, uh, learning his uh, paintwork in France. And I think Giraffes may have been done there. 1912, Leopard and Deer, Hopin, Hopi Indian Snake Dancer. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, aficionados will know that uh, Theodore Roosevelt, after his presidency, also witnessed uh, the uh, Hopi Indian Snake Dance in Arizona, and uh, there were screens that uh, Chandler was famous for, and these screens composed a significant part of the uh, of the channeling and presentation of the Armory Show exhibit in what was otherwise this great uh, portion of a uh, of a large open Armory building. So, April thirteenth, Teddy talks, and uh, in honor of the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the founding of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, uh, a year after losing the progressive uh, campaign for the presidency, just uh, just months after losing that election, I think showing a great deal of buoyancy uh, in his spirits and, and what he writes here. So I hope for your enjoyment. Uh, this being published in the Outlook magazine, March 29th, 1913. Theodore Roosevelt, of course, a uh, editor of uh, the outlook. The recent international exhibition of modern art in New York was really noteworthy. Messrs. Davies, Kuhn, Gregg, and their fellow members of the Association of American Painters and Sculptors have done a valuable work of very real value in securing such an exhibition of the works of both foreign and native painters and sculptors. Primarily, their purpose was to give the public a chance to see what has recently been going on abroad. No similar collection of works of European moderns 
has ever been exhibited in this country. The exhibitors are quite right as to the need of showing to our people in this manner the art forces which of late have been at work in Europe, forces which cannot be ignored. This does not mean that I in the least accept the view that these men take of the European extremists whose pictures are here exhibited. It is true, as the champions of these extremists say, that there can be no life without change, and that to be afraid of what is different or unfamiliar is to be afraid of life. It is no less true, however, that change may mean death and not life and retrogression instead of development. Probably we err in treating most of these pictures seriously. It is likely that many of them represent in the painters the astute appreciations of the power to make folly lucrative, which the late P.T. Barnum showed with his fate mermaid. There are thousands of people who will pay small sums to look at a faked mermaid, and now and then one of this kind with enough money will buy a cubist picture, or a picture of a misshapen nude woman, repellent from every standpoint. In some ways it is the work of the American painters and sculptors which is of most interest in this collection and a glance at this work must convince anyone of the real good that is coming out of the new movements, fantastic though many of the developments of these new movements are. There was one note entirely absent from the exhibition, and that was the note of the commonplace. There was not a touch of simpering, self-satisfied conventionality anywhere in the exhibition. Any sculptor or painter who had in him something to express and the power of expressing it found the field open to him. He did not have to be afraid because his work was not along ordinary lines. There was no stunting or dwarfing, no requirement that a man whose gift lay in new directions should measure up or down to stereotype and fossilized standards. For all of this, there can be only hearty praise, but this does not in the least mean that the extremists whose paintings and pictures were represented are entitled to any praise, save perhaps that that they have helped to break fetters. Probably in any reform movement, in any field of life, the penalty for avoiding the commonplace is a liability to extravagance. It is vitally necessary to move forward and to shake off the dead hand, often the fossilized dead hand, of the reactionaries. And yet we have to face the fact that there is apt to be a lunatic fringe among the votaries of any forward movement. In this recent art exhibition, the lunatic fringe was fully in evidence, especially in the rooms devoted to the Cubists and the Futurists or mere Impressionists. I am not entirely certain which of the two latter terms should be used in connection with some of the various pictures and representations of plastic art, and quite frankly it is not of the least consequence. The Cubists are entitled to the serious attention of all who find enjoyment in the colored puzzle pictures of the Sunday newspapers. Of course there is no reason for choosing the cube as a symbol, 
except that it is probably less fitted than any other mathematical expression for any but the most formal decorative art. There is no reason why people should not call themselves cubists, or octagonists, or parallelopipedonists, or knights of the isosceles triangle, or brothers of the cosine, if they so desire. As expressing anything serious and permanent, one term is as fatuous as another. Take the picture which for some reason is called a naked man going downstairs. There is in my bathroom a really good Navajo rug, which on any proper interpretation of the cubist theory is a far more satisfactory and decorative picture. Now, if for some inscrutable reason it suited somebody to call this rug a picture of, say, a well-dressed man going up a ladder, the name would fit the facts just about as well as in the case of the cubist picture of the naked man going downstairs. From the standpoint of terminology, each name would have whatever merit in hairs and a rather cheap straining after effect. And from the standpoint of decorative value, of sincerity, and of artistic merit, the Navajo rug is infinitely ahead of the picture. As for many of the human figures in the pictures of the futurists, they show that the school would be better entitled to the name of pastists. I was interested to find that a man of scientific attainments who had likewise looked at pictures had been struck, as I was, by the resemblance to the latter work of the Paleolithic artists of the French and Spanish caves. There are interesting samples of the strivings for the representation of the human form among artists of many different countries and times, all in the same stage of Paleolithic culture to be found in recent number of the Revue des Ethnographies. The Paleolithic artist was able to portray the bison, the mammoth, the reindeer, and the horse with spirit and success, while he stumbled painfully in the effort to portray man this stumbling effort, in his case, represented progress, and he is entitled to a great credit for it. 40,000 years later, when entered into artificially and deliberately, it represents only a smirking pose of retrogression and is not praiseworthy. So with much of the sculpture, a family group of precisely the merit that inheres in a structure made of the wooden blocks in a nursery is not entitled to be reproduced in marble. Admirers speak of the kneeling female figure by Lembrook. I use female advisedly, for though all obviously mammalian, it is not especially human, as full of lyric grace, as tremendously sincere, and of a jewel-like freshness. But I am not competent to say whether these words themselves represent sincerity or merely conventional jargon. It is just as easy to be conventional about the fantastic as about the commonplace. In any event, one might as well speak of the, quote, lyric grace of a praying mantis, which adopts much the same attitude, or why a deformed pelvis should be called, quote, sincere, or a tibia of giraffe-like length, precious, is a question of pathological rather than artistic significance. This figure and the absorbed portrait head of some young lady 
have the merit that endears an extravagant caricature. It is a merit, but it is not a high merit. It entitles these pieces to stand in sculpture, where nonsense rhymes stand in literature, in the sketches of Aubrey Beardsley in pictorial art. These modern sculptured caricatures in no way approach the gargoyles of Gothic cathedrals, probably because the modern artists are too self-conscious to make themselves ridiculous by pretentiousness. The makers of the gargoyles knew very well that the gargoyles did not represent what was important in the Gothic cathedrals. They stood for just a little pint of grotesque reaction against it, relief from the tremendous elemental vastness and grandeur of the house of God. They were imps, sinister and comic, grim yet futile, and they fitted admirably into the framework of the theology that found its expression in the towering and wonderful piles which they ornamented. Very little work of the extremists among the European moderns seems to be good in and for itself. Nevertheless, it has certainly helped any number of American artists do work that is original and serious. This not only in painting, but in sculpture. I wish the exhibition had contained some of the work of the late Marcius Simmons. Very few people knew or cared for it while he lived. But not since Turner has there been another man on whose canvas glowed so much of the unearthly, quote, light that never was on land or sea, unquote. But the exhibition contains so much of extraordinary merit that it is ungrateful even to mention an omission. To name the pictures one would like to possess, and the bronzes and tanagras and plasters, would mean to make a catalogue of indefinite length. One of the most striking pictures was the terminal yards. The seeing eye was there, and the cunning hand. I should like to mention all the pictures of the president of the associations, Arthur B. Davies, as first-class decorative work of an entirely new type. The very unexpected pictures of Sheriff Bob Chan have merit all their own. The Arizona Desert, the Canadian Night, the group of girls on the roof of a New York tenement house, the studies of the Bronx Zoos, the Heracles, the studies for the Utah Monument, the little group called Gossip, which has something of the uh, uh, quality of the famous 15th century idol of Theocritus, the Pelf with its grim suggestiveness. These and a hundred others are worthy of study, each of them, I am naming at random those which at the moment I happen to recall. I am not speaking of the acknowledged masters of Whistler, Louis de Chavanet, Monet, nor of John's children, nor of Cezanne's uh, old woman with a rosary, uh, nor of Rodon's marvelous color pieces. A worthy critic should speak of these. All I am trying to do is to point out why a lame is grateful to those who arrange this exhibition. And I am so very grateful uh, that uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, review uh, was not originally included in uh, a compilation of uh, for and against uh, 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 reviews that followed the Armory Show to its subsequent uh, setting up at the Art Institute uh, in Chicago. 
uh, but in this uh, wonderful publication for and against uh, the uh, the uh, editorial published in Outlook magazine is in this collection of essays. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, uh, video, a, a documentary film uh, made of the 1913 uh, Armory show. It's called The Great Confusion. I think you can find that uh, online. The Great Confusion, the 1913 Armory show. Thank you for uh, joining today at Teddy Talks. Look forward to seeing you throughout the week. Tomorrow, it's the anniversary of Theodore Roosevelt laying the cornerstone uh, to the new House Office Building in Washington, D.C. in 1906. Uh, this would become known as the Cannon House Office Building, named for Speaker of the House Joe Cannon, uh, uh, Uncle Joe of Danville, Illinois, along the Vermilion River. And it is also uh, the birthday of a great hero, a public servant from North Dakota, uh, the late Rear Admiral Tom Paulson, who uh, uh, died at the end of March uh, this year, 2020. Uh, he had been living in Northern Virginia and our prayers go out to uh, uh, his family. A tomorrow's show dedicated to that son of North Dakota, uh, the late Rear Admiral Thomas Paulson of Watford City and Bismarck. We'll see you tomorrow on Teddy Talks.